I think verse 8 is uh, an interesting verse that by this my father's glorified that you bear much fruit. Um, as if God needs any help being glorified. I mean, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the God of glory. But it's an awesome thought that God chooses to be glorified through his sons and daughters and that he is most glorified when you and I bear fruit. One of the things that I um, hope to accomplish this morning is hammering home the point that true Christian living is not quite as difficult as we make it to be sometimes. We overthink things. I mean, there are probably people under the sound of my voice that you are racking your mind in your heart around the question of, what is the will of God for my life? But the reality is, the will of God is not as complicated as we think. Paul wrote to one of the churches on this topic and said that he fears lest we have moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. There is a simplicity to the faith. There is something that is meant to be simple. It's not necessarily easy to be a Christian, but what God has called us to is not difficult to understand. The ultimate goal here, you want to glorify God? Bear fruit. You want to live a life that at the end of your life, it can be said of you, well done, good and faithful servant? Then bear fruit. You want to live a life that when it's all over, your life brought glory to God? Listen to this awesome, simple statement. Our Father is most glorified when we bear fruit. And so what does it look like then to bear fruit? What does it look like when we as Christians bear fruit? In John 15, we see that this is how God is glorified. And then in Galatians chapter 5, we have a list of what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. It's an easy list to remember. I learned this list through a song at a vacation Bible school many years ago. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This morning what I want to do is very practically take a look at each of these fruits and talk about what they should look like in the Christian experience. If you're a note taker, you'll notice that there's not one, two, and three fill-in-the-blank point notes this morning. You've just got a blank piece of paper to take down notes as the Lord leads you to do so. We're going to walk through the fruits of the Spirit. The first one is love. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, before I talk about love in the Christian life, it's very important that we define love biblically because it's a word that we've kind of lost understanding of in this day and time. We confuse lust with love. I'm going to give you some real kind of brief 
things that help differentiate lust and love. So love gives away to help others. That's what love does. Love is giving. Lust takes from others to me to, sat, to satisfy a personal need. Love is willing to wait. Lust is impatient. Love is selfless. Another word would be sacrificing. Love is sacrificing. But lust, on the other hand, is selfish and takes. Love stays and serves. But lust abandons when it is no longer having its own needs met. So what does God say about love? God actually defines love, and I think this tells us how important it is for us to have a biblical definition of love. God takes an entire chapter of the Bible to give us a biblical definition of love. And for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to go through the whole chapter, but I would encourage you, go home and read it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The whole chapter is God's definition of love. And what I want to do is just highlight some of the things God tells you and I real love is. In 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things God says is that without love, we are nothing. That's a very strong statement. Without love, we are nothing. He even uses the example, like you can give a lot of things away and do good to this person and do good to that person, but if you don't have love, it's all meaningless. He says it's like a sounding gong in somebody's ear. This is an important lesson for us. Do not lose sight of the fact this morning and everything I'm about to walk us through that God is glorified when we bear fruit and that the fruit we need to bear is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's vitally important that we as Christians learn how to bear the fruit of love because without it, we're nothing. There's a lot of things that you can do as a Christian and, and pat yourself on the back and think you're doing a great job and you serve here and you do this and you give to this thing and you give to that organization and you know you, you, you got so many church services under your belt and you can quote scripture and you do this and you do that. But if you're a person that comes across as unloving and rude to people, all of that will come to very, very little. God says without love, we are nothing. He goes on to say that love suffers. It's an interesting word to use of love. The point being that love is willing to go through pain if necessary in order to help other people. And folks, there's never been a greater example than Jesus. Consider the pain that Jesus went through because he loved the Father and he loved us. Love suffers. It's willing to give up. It's willing to sacrifice. It's willing to say, you know, just because I have the right to something doesn't mean that I'm not willing to let it go if it will help you, if it will help others. Love is not puffed up. That's another word or statement God uses to define love. It's not puffed up. That word is probably better, the word we translate puffed up is probably better translated self-promoting. Love is not self-promoting. Rather, it's focused on bringing others up. So the opposite of love is self-promotion. 
Love does not rejoice in sin. It's one of the things God tells us about love. Now, I, I would argue in this era of time, folks, that is a really important verse to memorize concerning love. Love does not rejoice in sin. So first of all, why not? Why does love not rejoice in sin? Well, because sin separates us from God. Sin is destructive. There is no such thing as good sin. Sin is destructive. It separates us from God. And ultimately, if sin is not repented of, if we, con- if we continue in our sins and we continue in our wicked ways, it will lead to eternal separation from God, to an eternity in hell. And so it's not possible to love somebody and rejoice in their sin. We are living in a time of the last 20, 30 years where even in the church, at times, we have began to rejoice in sin. We literally, in some circles, celebrate sin as if it's a good thing. It's not. And true love will never rejoice in sin. This is true. Um, I, I think it's important that we, that we are uh, fair across the board and understand that I've seen people literally rejoice in the sins of fornication. It's uh, somewhat ironic, uh, even just this week, nationally, we had somebody show up at a prayer breakfast, a national prayer breakfast, and joke around about um, not being able to have fornication before the prayer breakfast, but that after the breakfast was over, later that night, they'd take care of it. This just happened. And in the church, we've got to this point where it's like, uh, we're, we're not only no longer appalled at sin, but we celebrate it. Whether it's heterosexual sin, man and woman, fornication outside of marriage. We see the celebration of homosexual sin. We have, we have denominations ordaining spiritual leaders to lead the people of God who are openly homosexual. It's insanity. And love, real love, it does not rejoice in sin. We've got to let God define what love is for us. It does not rejoice in it. And I think we, we, we must communicate truth in love and compassion and tenderness. But we must not mistake the fact that loving somebody does not mean that we celebrate and rejoice in their sin. It's insanity to celebrate anything that would ruin a person's life. It doesn't make sense. We would throw some party because somebody was distant from God and and ultimately going to spend forever in hell if things don't change. Who would throw a party for something like that? Who would celebrate something like that? And so God says, you've got to, this fruit of love is one of the most important 
fruits. It's the first one that comes out there. And he has this entire chapter devoted to love in 1 Corinthians 13. But he says, don't mistake it. Loving somebody is not the same thing. It's not the same thing as simply saying everything they do is good, applauding everything they do, and accepting everything they do. That's not love. It's cowardly. So love does not rejoice in sin, but it goes on to say, but rejoices in the truth. Why does it rejoice in the truth? Because ultimately the truth is the only thing that can make anybody free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We must be willing to share the truth in love and in grace, but we've got to share the truth. He says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's one of the realities about true love is that it always hopes in the best for people. You know, you, you, you probably, there's not another example you can think of better of love bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, than when a parent has a child that has gone astray. You'll find when a child is running from the Lord, a child has gone astray, there is, it does not really matter how far gone that child is. There's nobody on the planet that is more hopeful than the parents. Mom or dad just always seems to have this ability to hope for the best, no matter what we are going through. And so love hopes all things. And then it goes on to say that love never fails. So we as believers have this responsibility to produce this fruit of love. Next, we see the fruit of joy. Fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy. Joy is defined as a state of gladness, a state of great happiness. Um, It is at times even used right next to uh, being fearful or dealing with difficult things. It tells us, in fact, that when Jesus had risen from the grave, that um, the disciples, when they went and saw the tomb was empty, they had great fear and joy. That's important to understand. This real joy, biblical joy, can go right in the face of difficulty and trials. It's not a sticking our head in the sand and being ignorant to everything that's going on around us. But biblical joy is this true sense of no matter what I go through, no matter how difficult things are, the fact is that God is with me. Now, joy is really important to our testimony, to people hearing what we have to say. And I think it's easiest to demonstrate this when we consider the opposite of joy. Joyful people are fun to be around. But joyless people are not. Have you ever had to like endure a meal at a restaurant with a waiter or waitress who is just joyless? Have you ever had that happen and it feels like it's your job to cheer them up? You know, they're supposed to be serving you. You're there. You're there paying for your meal. But there's just something about them. There's no joy. They're just dejected and it sort of feels like it's my job to cheer them up. Have you ever had to spend your day working with a joyless co-worker? Live with a joyless family member? You have a friend maybe in your life that is constantly just void of joy. What you'll find is that these people are often hard or difficult to be around. 
as Christians, we want to guard ourselves against quenching the Holy Spirit in our life and quenching joy out of our life because when we live with joy and we walk with joy, it gives a sense of credibility to our testimony. When the world can look at you or the world can look at me and realize that we are going through the same things everybody else is, we are, de- we, we are battling hardship, we deal with pain and sorrow and sickness and death like everybody else in the world, but there's a sense of joy that we walk with. And where does that joy come from? The answer is the Lord. The answer is you've got to be tapped into Jesus. But when we walk with that joy, it gives a sense of credibility to our testimony. Joy does not mean the absence of pain. It does not mean the absence of suffering. Joy is not the result of everything going like it should be, but rather true joy is the ability to find something to rejoice in, even in the midst of pain. It's the ability to smile and find life enjoyable, even in a suffering world. There's a story about joy that um, has always impacted me ever since hearing it. Some of you may know uh, that years ago I used to travel a lot and give my testimony specifically at Gideon conventions. I was saved uh, in part due to a Gideon Bible that was handed to me. And at one of these conventions, I heard another testimony of of a man, uh, actually worked for the Gideon organization, who met personally the executioner I'm about to tell you about. This is an awesome story. So you may remember 20, 30 years ago in certain parts of Africa, there was a large problem where children were being forced to take up arms and and kill each other and fight for, you know, a really crooked militia. And if you're, you know, 35, 40 years or older, you probably remember seeing some of this in the news. It still happens some today, but it was a very big problem um, several decades ago. There was a young boy who was taken hostage at a young age and forced into this militia, this military, forced to start killing at a young age. And this exe- he, he, he became an executioner. At an early age, I want to say 18 or 19 years old, he was elevated within this militia because he was known for being so violent as a boy, had no problem pulling the trigger. Years go on, he continues his position within this militia, and he gets word, they get word, that there is a Christian missionary within this area that they kind of considered their territory. And so they go to arrest this missionary and charge him for the crime of being a Christian missionary and spreading the gospel. They get to the guy, they arrest the guy, and the the guy's name, the missionary's name is George. The day came for George's execution. And the executioner, with a handful of his guys, are leading George from where he was kept to the place of his execution. And on the way, George is singing songs with a sincere sense of gratitude and joy. The executioner tells the story that he was annoyed 
at George's attitude, that it was strange, that of all the executions he'd ever done, he had never done one with a guy that was singing on his way to his execution, that repeatedly he tried to get George to shut up, reminded him, you're going to die, what are you singing about, and that the whole thing was somewhat annoying to him. At the execution, George was given the, um, I don't know the right word for it, courtesy, for all I know, it was actually part of their law, but was given the right to say his last words. And when given the opportunity before his own execution to say his last words, this is what George said. It's, it's really humorous. He looked at the executioner and said these words, I bet you can't even read. That was what he told him. The executioner said, I can too. And George said, well, if you really want to know where my joy comes from, read this. And he pulled out a small New Testament Bible that he had in his back pocket and handed it to the guy. The guy took it and then shortly thereafter went through with his job, what he was paid to do, and executed George. George died. True story. There was no saving of his life. But the executioner could not get it out of his mind, the joy that that guy had, and that it was real, that even up to the end, when he had the final opportunity to either recant or say something, all that he wanted to do was make sure that this man read this book to help understand where his joy came from, and the executioner could not get away from it, read the Bible, eventually accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, turned his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then spent almost 20 years before he died as an evangelist in that exact same territory. It's an amazing story. But it all started with the very real fruit of joy. What I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, is that joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit... It is not something that we Christians walk around with because we don't suffer and we never go through anything. God just gives us candy all the time and life is always good. And life is always easy. That's why we're so happy. No, a thousand times no. Life is hard for us too. We suffer too. We experience the same things that most everybody else in this world suffers when it comes to sorrow, pain, sickness, death, uh, job loss, betrayal, the less could go on and on and on. We suffer these things too. Our joy is not because we are exempt from all of that. Our joy is because we have a very real understanding. This is not even our home. This is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. Our home is a heavenly home. We are citizens with a heavenly citizenship God loved us when we weren't worth loving. He saved us when we didn't seem worth saving to us anyways. He sent his son to pay all of our sins and die on the cross. We have a reason to have joy no matter what this world brings. How do we develop joy? If you're here this morning and you have a difficult time with joy in your life, how do we develop it? The first thing is getting the negative stuff out of your life that chokes out joy. The Bible talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you, folks, one of the main ways you can quench joy out of your life, the fruit of the Holy Spirit of joy, 
one of the main ways you can quench that out is by constantly consuming negative media. There comes a time and place you just got to turn off the news. You got to get off of Facebook. You got to get off of Instagram. You got to get off of whatever, your Twitter, whatever it is. And I'm not a, you know, I'm not an anti-news guy, but I I have enough wisdom to understand that you got to be careful how much you consume. You need to understand something about modern day news. And when I say news, I'm talking about television news. I'm talking about news that you may get, information that you get through social media platforms or something you have to understand about news. The purpose of news is to make money. You've got to understand that. I don't know if there ever was a time that news was truly about informing people, but if there was such a time, it no longer exists. News is not about informing people. It's about influencing people, and it's about making money. You've got to understand something about the human population. We, as a bunch of main Christians here this morning, Folks, if we're guilty, you can trust the rest of the world is. And what I'm about to tell you, you know it's true with you. The news that you gravitate towards is bad news. You don't like to read good news. If you've got a news feed up, you're scrolling past the good news to, oh, 50 people dead in Chicago. Let's read that. You're scrolling past the good news to the worst news. That's the way we are as people. Now understand something. The news organizations know that. And their job is to make money. Their job is to make sure you watch the show and you don't get bored because they're talking about the good things going on in life. Now the the only reason I'm sharing this is, folks, because if we're not careful, we will consume so much media, so much TV, spend so much time on Facebook, so much time on Instagram, and all of a sudden we just don't have any joy. Well, you consume enough negative news, you're going to find it quenches the fruit of the spirit of joy straight out of your life. You've got to learn to put it down. I remember during uh, COVID specifically, Watching the news and just hearing how terrible it was. And and listen, I had a dad that died in the hospital over COVID, during COVID. Family couldn't hardly be in there to see him. I understand that it was a difficult time for a lot of people. I know that COVID was an actual strain of a virus. I'm not a COVID denier, but listen to me. In Joplin Emerson's life, I watched the news tell me what was going on. And then I looked around at my world, I'm like, what ain't happening here? I looked down my street, literally at one point in time, walk, I like to walk and pray. I'm walking down my street, and I'm thinking about this neighbor, and I'm thinking about that neighbor, and I'm thinking about that neighbor, and I'm thinking about my home. I'm like, well, this ain't happening in my neighborhood. But according to the news, it's happening everywhere, and this is everybody's life. And I'm like, do I believe what the news tells me, or do I believe what I see with my own two eyes? And this guy chose to believe what I saw with my own two eyes. I had no intentions of spending that much of a rant on news. The point is not about news. The point is this. That God is most glorified when you and I bear fruit, 
And one of the fruits that we are to bear is the fruit of joy. And if we're going to develop joy in our life, you've got to be intentional about getting all the negative stuff out of your life that's sucking the joy out of your life. Building joy into your life. What are some positive things that you can do to build joy into your life? Psalm 37 verse 4 speaks about delighting yourself in the Lord. He's got to be first. He's got to be more important than anything else, more important in your career, more important in your job, more important in, you know, your health, more important in your, your money, more important in your possessions. He's got to be first. You've got to find yourself where it's like, God, I want to develop this love for you that above everything else in life, you are most important to me. You got to learn to let go of the past. You cannot change the past. If you're going to have joy in your life, you cannot allow the past to keep sucking the joy out of your life. There's times in your life you've got to forgive people, and sometimes you've got to forgive yourself. You can't change the stuff that you did back then. You've got to be able to forgive, whether you're forgiving someone else, whether you're forgiving yourself, and you've got to move forward. Are we men and women of joy this morning? Some of my other points on joy, I've just got to move. I'm going to read them. Enjoy the journey. Learn to enjoy life. Don't worship the finish line. Don't worship your goals. Enjoy the process along the way. The next fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And true peace, like all of these fruits, the supernatural peace, the supernatural love, the supernatural joy, folks, we can't really have it if we're not tapped into the vine. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can't do anything. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to glorify God by bearing fruit. But if you're going to bear fruit, Jesus says you've got to be tapped into him. And here we see the fruit of peace. Colossians 3.15 speaks about this. It speaks about the heart that is ruled by peace. Is your heart ruled by peace this morning? This is what God wants to bring peace to is your heart. Because you're going to find there is not peace in the world. One of the statistics that I was looking at in producing this point was that in recorded history, so we've got a little over 3,000 years of recorded history. In recorded history, there are less than 300 years where somebody on the globe wasn't at war. And that's just recorded, like, in this particular year, there's no record of war anywhere. But less than 10% of human history recorded were we not at war somewhere. It's joked that when we first sent people to the moon and they stuck the flag in what they called the Sea of Tranquility, that it was tranquil because no humans had ever been there yet. There's a degree of truth to that. And so, folks, the, the, the peace that you and I are called, this fruit of peace in our life that you and I are to be living with, this peace that the Bible says surpasses understanding, it has nothing to do with the world around us somehow no longer being chaos. But God's sons and daughters can learn to live with peace to have peace, to have the peace of Christ ruling our hearts, even in the midst of a fallen world. 
Next, we see the fruit of patience. This is a fruit of the Spirit, patience. And this is a particular fruit, such as the fruit of love. The fruit of patience is also a particular fruit that's been under attack, folks. We are not a patient people. We have been taught that whatever we want, we should be able to get it now. And it's, it's truly permeated every area of our life. I mean, I find myself guilty of this. Guilty. I will call Chris Hernandez, and I'll say, hey, is my particular tool up at the church? And he's like, I think it might be. I'm not sure. It might be in this closet. And I'm like, eh, I'll just go to Lowe's and buy another one. Won't hurt to have two. I'm impatient. I need the tool, and I need it right now. And I know for a fact if I just go to Lowe's, I can get it. Whereas if I come up here and look around, I might not find it. I might find it and take extra time. And who knows? It's always good to have two. Huh? We live in a culture where at some restaurants you can pull up to order, and at some of them, if they don't have your food hot and ready in five minutes or less, you actually, sometimes the food's free, or sometimes they'll give you a coupon for coming back to get something else, but there's, there's some type of repercussion where they make it right because you didn't get your food fast enough. And this mindset, folks, it starts to kind of permeate our Christian faith. It, a lot of times it permeates our willingness to wait on God. Like we're going to pray, God, I want your will in my life, and I want you to help me to find the right you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse. But if you don't make this happen by the end of this week, I'm going to have to give you a little help. And then we get out in front of God. We don't want to be patient. We start, it's like, we think we're going to figure things out and then ask God to fix it on the back end. And in this world where logistically, logistically, we can get pretty much whatever we want when we want it with very little waiting time, you'll find that this fruit of the Spirit is something that takes some real work to develop. Learning to be patient with people. People take time to change. Learning to be patient with coworkers, learning to be patient with a spouse, learning to be patient with kids, learning to be patient with your pastors, learning to be patient with, you know, we, patience is something that we have to work at. But God says it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that when we are patient, God is glorified because of it. Next, we see kindness. I'm going to go through these next few fairly quickly. We see kindness. Kindness is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Goodness, the quality of being good, in particular, virtue, moral excellence. I want to mix uh, kindness and goodness and gentleness all together. Gentleness means to be mild in temper or behavior. Literally, the word gentleness has the word kind in its definition. You're going to find this about the fruits of the Spirit. A lot of them overlap. That patience and peace go hand in hand. That love and kindness go hand in hand. But I think about kindness, goodness, and gentleness. 
And of the three fruits of the Spirit, to me, for Joplin Emerson anyways, they tend to be the easiest um, to do. It's not hard to be kind to somebody. You know, it's not, it's not hard to be gentle. One of the things that's fascinated me over the years is the power of these fruits. Like, I've seen some of you all at times, this, this is especially true with folks I've traveled out on the mission field with. It's like, we, don't, we, we can't fix everybody's problems. Can't, can't, you don't, even if you had a million dollars, it wouldn't be enough to, to do what needs done. But just the willingness to sit with somebody and be kind to them, just care for them, be good, the power that it has to change lives, the, the, the openness it has. I have literally watched young people in just the last month. I've watched young people whose hearts were opened up to the fact that maybe God is good and maybe God is doing something they don't understand and, and maybe it's not all what they thought. Everything's not bad. Maybe God does love them. I've watched hearts open up simply because people were cracked open when they were loved on and cared for and people were simply kind to them. There's a certain tilling of the ground, right? The Bible talks about the heart, how the heart can be hardened. And how it can be so hardened that the seed of God's word doesn't even penetrate it at all. And, it, and, and I think sometimes our willingness to be kind and gentle and good to people, it can start to till up that heart so that the word of God begins to take root. Next we see faithfulness. I want to finish with faithfulness and then self-control. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God is glorified in. And I want to be really cautious in how I deal with faithfulness this morning. Right? I'm not the, I've never have been the, the super legalist pastor. You got to be at church every Sunday, every Wednesday. You got to be at every possible event that we're doing. You got to do this, got to do that. I've never been that guy. And I'm not going to be that guy. But it is worth noting faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And faithfulness plays itself out in our commitment to church, in our commitment to the church body, in our commitment to the Word of God and the study of the Word of God, in our commitment to the prayer closet and spending time with God in prayer. Faithfulness in our Christian disciplines is a fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness is about accountability, like you can be counted on. And I would ask you the question this morning, can you be? Can you be counted on to be faithful in the things of God? Faithful in your discipline to your Christian disciplines? Faithful in our time. Faithful in our participation in the body of Christ. Faithful in our finances. The one thing that I'll say about faithfulness is that however it works itself out in your life, God must be first. We should not be making excuses 
um, to miss church and miss our faithfulness to the things of God because of exterior activities, but rather most of the time, those exterior activities, we should be making excuses not to be at them because I needed to be in the house of God or because I needed to be faithful to my commitment for God. I'm always so hesitant on how I handle these things because we have to be so careful not to become legalist. I recognize that there are legitimate reasons for... um, people's schedules that can't be changed and work and the responsibility of having to even at times provide food for your own children and your job forces you to work a Sunday. And so I want to be so cautious in how I handle this. But I will say this. I I think we've lost sight of faithfulness in the house of God. And there's not really an expectation that if you're a Christian, there's a degree of faithfulness that should be expected of you. Faithfulness in your giving, faithfulness in your participation, faithfulness to be at church, faithfulness to hear the Word of God preached. And finally, the last fruit of the Spirit that I want us to look at is self-control. I want to share two verses about self-control, and then I want to talk about it. So first of all, Acts 17.30 says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You need to know that God commands all men everywhere to repent. In other words, the Lord Jesus isn't just standing today saying, please come to me. He is commanding us to repent of our wickedness. It is not an invitation. It is a command to repent. Repent of your sins. This is part of self-control. And then Jesus told his disciples this in Luke 21, 19. By your patience, possess your souls. And it does take patience to learn how to possess your soul. It's a kind of a strange uh, statement, possess your soul, especially biblically. We think of the word possession and we think of demonic possession. All it means is to grab a hold of something, to possess something, to hold it. Your soul, biblically, is this, this word that is used to reference three things that are part of you. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. And here's what Jesus told his disciples. Grab a hold of your mind, grab a hold of your will, and grab a hold of your emotions. Take control of them. Stop being controlled by every impulse that you have. Be self-controlled. Control yourself. Learn to say no. Learn that every time you have an impulse, you don't have to give in to it. Learn that every time your back scratches, you don't have to scratch it. Learn to say no to the fleshly impulses that are pulling you away from God. Possess your own soul. So self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to control yourself. The Holy Spirit will not 
remove your flesh nature. And a lot of times that's what we're praying for. We're like, God, if you just take away the urge to do these sinful things, I would never do them. That's just not how it works, folks. I've been serving God now for 23 years of my life. I'd like to believe that I've served Him as well as I can. I'd like to believe and, and do that I, my, my heart is all in. I despise sin. I hate it when I fall. I don't like it when I sin. I'm broken by it. But here's the reality, folks. 23 years later, I can tell you something. I still have a flesh nature. I still have to fight off sin. I still have to possess, take a hold of my own soul and tell that old flesh nature the answer is no. We're not going to treat people that way. We're not going to get in that little pity party attitude. We're not going to get selfish here. We're not going to go this direction. We're not going to go that direction. We're going to do it God's way, whether you feel like it or not, Joplin. And I'm telling you, folks, after more than two decades of it, it doesn't change. This is a lifelong process, and you need to understand something. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit to be self-controlled. If you wait around your whole life to be obedient to God and to be self-controlled until you no longer have bad urges, then you'll just continue your path of sin your entire life. You've got to learn to say no to those urges. I'm going to ask our worship team if you guys would come at this time. I want to close. I want to close right where I started. Isn't that awesome that this is what Jesus told his disciples on the last night of his life? He's like, I'm getting ready to turn it over to you, boys. The kingdom, I'm turning it over to you. Now it's going to be up to you to glorify God. Here's how you do it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You men do these things, turn the world upside down. You do these things, men, and you're going to bring real glory to my Father. It wasn't about the numbers. It wasn't about any of that stuff. It was about a personal walk with God where the spiritual fruit is produced in their life. And the same is true today, folks. And we've, we have to guard ourselves against getting trapped in wanting to have a million followers, wanting to have a bunch of views. God knows my heart. It's honestly something this guy's never got super trapped up in. But there have been times before, like after a good service, where I'd hop on Facebook just to see how many likes we had. It's true. But it's God's honest truth. I couldn't even tell you the last time that happened. Possibly years. Possibly years. Because I have learned to see what I'm telling you. It doesn't matter. <laughs> My job is to produce spiritual fruit for God and let everything else that happens because of that happen. It's not my job to take numbers. It's not my job to have metrics. It's not my job to have millions of followers. It's not none of that. And you get caught up in that stuff, all of a sudden, you get off track. And how do we produce fruit? How do we do it? Jesus said the answer was by being tapped into Him. I 
am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. So the whole goal, I'm telling you, it's more simple than we make it sometimes, folks. You want to glorify God, you got to bear fruit. How do you bear fruit? It's real simple. You tapped into Jesus. That's it. Now imagine if we truly this morning, truly, the majority of us really believe that. And the majority of us really did something like that. And our focus became as individuals, Lord, I just want to be tapped into you. I want to walk with you. I want to hear you when, when I read your word, Lord, I want you to speak to my heart. When I show up to church, Lord, and the preacher preaches, I want you to speak to me. God, I want to spend time with you where, 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 I, where I talk with you and I pray, and, but, but I also learn to hear from you. And Lord, I truly want to be tapped into you. And then we go to our workplaces and we're, we, we are that guy that's full of joy. We are that lady that's full of love. We are that person that's walking with peace in the midst of the storm. And all of a sudden the world around us is looking and saying, where does this come from? Just like that executioner. George where does that guy get that joy from I've got to know for myself people begin to see the fruit that we produce and it creates a very real platform for us to have a meaningful conversation about a faith that actually changes us brothers and sisters really is that simple really is I'm not saying living that way is easy. What I'm saying is it's not complicated to understand. What I'm saying is that what God has called us to is clear and unmistakable. 